Recording in progress. And we're live. Thank you. Well, welcome everybody to the uh, April 7th, 2022 Historical Advisory Board meeting, calling the meeting to order. And um, the first item on our agenda is roll call. Okay, I'll take a roll call. Um, Chair Saxby. I am present. Uh, Board Member Jones. Present. Lau. Present. Sanchez. Present. And wait. Here. <laughs> We're all here. Um, thank you. Uh, the next item is a review of the minutes from our February 3rd uh, meeting. Did everybody have a chance to, to read through the minutes and are there any comments? I see everybody shaking their head. So do we have a motion? I don't have any comments either. Do we have a motion to approve those minutes? I motion to approve the minutes. In a second. I'll second it. All in favor of approving the minutes from February 3rd? Aye. Aye. Show of hands, it's unanimous. Thank you. And there are no changes to those minutes. Uh, next item on the agenda, item four, is uh, agenda changes and discussions. Do we have any changes or discussions? I think um, possibly what we were talking about earlier before we went live with the um, with this meeting is the the opportunity to extend this detail Recording that was in required progress. to review it. <clears throat> and so I don't know if that's a, if this is a proper place to do that, but I would uh, like to see us continue our discussion on this housing element into our April meeting and possibly further. I don't, I really can't say, but uh, does anybody else agree with me, me on that point? I see nodding heads from two people. Thumbs up from one. So do, should we take a formal uh, motion to carry this forward into our next meeting? Yeah, so um, you could do a vote to continue. Yeah. Do you think it's appropriate now or should we wait till after we've discussed it? Um, I think this is the right, is this the right spot, Andrew? Yeah, I, you can certainly do it now. I think the other thing you can do is we can have the, the workshop tonight um, you can spend as little as or as much time as you'd like tonight on it. And then at the end of the conversation, you know, a formally continue the, the item to the next meeting. And th then that way it'll just be automatically followed to okay. your next hearing. I mean, but you can also do it now. It's, it's. I just, I just feel like I personally yeah. uh, in the few hours that I had, didn't get a chance to go through probably a third of the material. Completely understood. Um, Maybe more, maybe half. I'm sorry to say that all the um, the uh, the appendixes and those kinds it's, of things. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, so I, I will make a motion that we continue this uh, uh, our our item seven A review of the housing element. Um, we just plan to continue that into our April 
Historical Advisory Board meeting. Do, uh, does anybody have a second on that motion? No second. So I'll, I'll second that motion. <laughs> okay. We have a second. How about a vote? All in favor of continuing this into April? Raise right. your hand, please. Okay. So we got a 5-0 approval of that motion. So we'll just plan on that. We'll try to get as much talked about today, but don't feel any pressure. We can, we can come back to it next time. So that'll be continued to the May meeting. The, the there isn't an April meeting? Oh, excuse awesome. me, a May meeting. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I know what month it is here. Um, thank you for clarification. Um, next item on the agenda is oral communications. And this is an opportunity for uh, members of the public to talk to this board about issues that are not on our current agenda today, tonight that are relevant to this board. And do we have any speakers? There's no public comment at this time. Okay, so no oral communications, we'll close that and move on to written communications. Um, I know I've seen some written communications from uh, Alameda Architectural Preservation Society in our email. Are there other written communications? Um. I didn't see any other uh, written communications besides that one. Okay. And everybody's had a chance to, to look at those. Uh, okay, good. Okay, we're moving on to regular agenda items, item 7A. This is a public hearing to review and comment on the general plan annual report and draft housing element update. And my understanding is uh, there were three exhibits that were part of this. Um, agenda item, two of them you had to go and search for uh, and uh, go online and go to the um, alameda2040.org site and uh, find those exhibits. Did everybody get a chance to do that? Okay, because we, we received the general plan annual report as part of our communications, but the other two you had to go looking for. So just be aware that there's more material out there um, that you should be looking at and maybe look at that before our May uh, meeting. And uh, so I think staff's gonna give us a, a, a presentation on uh, this item. And so take it away. You're, you're muted, Andrew. Uh, thank you, board president. Saxby, uh, my name is Andrew Thomas. I'm the Planning, Building, and Transportation Director, and I'm here tonight, of course, with your Secretary, Henry Dong, from the City of Alameda Planning Department. Um, as as, as uh, your uh, board president said, we, we uh, included in your packet tonight um, the annual report on the general plan. Um, this is a report we, we, we produce every year. Um, we take it to the planning board um, and the... Uh, and the city council every year. It sort of reports on the types of, uh, of sort of the status of the general plan, how we're doing in terms of implementing it, and very importantly, how we're doing on our housing element, which is a, which is an element of the general plan, um, which is highly regulated under state law, and which under state law we're required to report on our housing production. Um, what that general plan annual report essentially says in, in a nutshell is, um, the city has made some major accomplishments in the last year. 
I mean, we finished our first comprehensive update of the general plan in 30 years. The council adopted that um, last November. So that was, that was huge. So is our general plan in good shape? Yeah, it's in pretty good shape. Um, it's current, it's internally consistent, it's up to date, which is sort of the three big cr criteria under state law um, that a general plan wants to meet. Um, the other piece of this is the housing element, which is one of the required chapters of the general plan. Um, it is being updated on a, on a slightly different schedule. We're in the midst of that update of that chapter right now. Um, the good news on the housing element, because we have to report annually, and we're at the end of the sort of current eight-year cycle, um, eight years ago, the city of Alameda adopted a housing element, which at the time felt like a very big housing element. We, we had basically, we were obligated to build 1,725 units. We rezoned a, a bunch of property. Um, we identified to the state where we thought we could get 1,725 units built over eight years. The, the state of California certified that housing element and said, yes, that sounds like a adequate housing plan. Here we are at the end of that eight year period. Um, we're, we are going to meet that, that obligation. Um, over the last eight years, Alameda has built over 1,725 housing units. So we've sort of proven that we can do a housing element and we've proven that we can then implement a housing element. Um, the, the, the other important point in that housing element or in that general plan annual report, and this is something that we've been reporting every year to the planning board and council is, yeah, the good news is we're meeting our total unit count. The bad news, and this is true of every city in the Bay Area, we're not meeting our affordable requirements. That component, the need for affordable housing far exceeds the ability of the private sector, essentially, because the private sector is building a lion's share of the housing in, in California, is not meeting the need for affordable housing. Um, so that's an ongoing challenge. Um, the other two parts of your agenda, the two parts that we are, um, that, uh, that are, we just posted on the city website on Monday, on Monday, we started a, or initiated a 30-day review on what we're calling the April draft housing element. So that's a 200-page document. It's the draft housing element, which under state law, we have to have adopted um, by January 31st of next year. Um, under state law, our regional housing needs allocation is about 5,353 units. So remember the last eight years, it was 1,725 units. So our, the challenge in front of us is, is three times as big. Um, so it's, it's a big challenge. Um, it's a reflection of what has happened in California and, and the fact that, that California has been producing on an annual basis far too little housing to meet the need. Um, and this is not just an Alameda thing, this is a statewide thing. Um, so under state law, we have to do a housing plan, we have to get it 
done by the end of essentially the end of the calendar year. Our goal is to get it to the city council for final approval um, by the end of this calendar year. So we're what we're what just the beginning of April. Um, you know, this is another nine months of community process. So, and the historic advisory board, um, as with all the boards, with all the members of the community, um, you know, it, this is a community planning process. So we're happy to come and meet with the historic advisory board as many times as you would like throughout this process so that you can have your say in this planning process and you can, um, and we will take your your recommendations to the planning board and the city council, who are the two sort of key boards and, and, and the legislative body, of course, under state law that have to make the final decisions. Um, couple, I'll just hit the highlights. As it, it's a big document, state law. The reason it's 200 pages, that's what it requires to meet the requirements of state law. Um, it's, from my perspective, it's a little bit of overkill um, a little bit too much work every eight years, um, but it, that's that's what you need to do. So every piece of that housing element, all 200 pages of it um, are there because we're trying to comply with some aspect of state law. I think the other thing, the other big concept that is important for the public to understand is under state law, yes, our city council needs to adopt it. It's a piece of our general plan, but it also has to be approved by the state department of housing and community development. So we're drafting a housing element for the, for the review and approval of two different bodies. Yes, we need to do something like we do with all the rest of our general plan. We try to just, we listen to our community. We look at our, some sort of general state law requirements, um, but essentially it's a local decision-making process. The community has input, the boards and commissions have input and the city council is the final decision maker and they decide with how, you know, the final version they want. For the state, for the housing element, it's slightly different. The city council can adopt a housing element, but if the state doesn't certify it as adequate, it's not a valid housing element. So. We're drafting a housing element for two different readers, for two different bodies. Um, and um, the other, the third document that we made available, it's on the city website. Uh, the reason we didn't include it uh, in your packet was we literally were working on it right up until first thing Monday morning and your packet went out last week. Um, so is the uh, set of zoning amendments that are associated with the housing element. Um, 5,353 units is a lot of units to build in eight years. Um, what we have to do under state laws, we have to show the state that we have enough land to do it and that the land is appropriately zoned because the city of Alameda, we don't actually build any housing at all. Our role in the process is the zoning of land. So what that is really, at, when it comes right down to it, what is the state law says? It says you have to show the state that you have enough land zoned appropriately so that the private sector who builds the lion's share of the housing in California can actually build 5,353 units. And that land has to be essentially available. Um, 
So what, how do we get to 5,353 units? Um, it, it, just in real simple, big picture terms, we've already have about 2,000 units that are either already approved or are will we have active projects on land that's already zoned appropriately. So we don't have to change any zoning. We've already approved those projects. Let's say like Encinal Terminals, for example, there's a whole list of them in the housing element. This is all documented in great detail in Appendix E, which is the site, the land inventory appendix. When people, that's the piece of the housing element that most people zoom into. Where is this housing gonna go in Alameda? So that what that appendix says is there's about 2000 units already planned or approved on land that's already zoned appropriately. So basically don't have to worry about it. Okay, so we need, um, and, that in, and then we, um, we have Alameda Point, probably our biggest single housing opportunity site. Great site. One thing that's great about it, there's a lot of land out there that's pretty vacant. Number two, a lot of it is zoned already for housing and is vacant. Um, the challenge, and so what the housing element says is, we think we can get 1,482 units built at Alameda Point in eight years. That is almost a quarter of the RENA, the regional housing need. That's about a quarter, quarter of our obligation. We're basically, this housing element is saying, we, the city of Alameda, we are committed to getting 1,482 units built out there. Um, sounds like a pretty specific number, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> There's a couple factors. Why only 1482? Because a lot of people in Alameda are like, geez, you got all that land. Just put it all at Alameda Point. Why don't you just put it all there? There's a couple factors. Number one, you can't build housing at Alameda Point without rebuilding all the infrastructure for that housing. It's completely different than every other place in Alameda. You know, Encinal Terminals, Del Monte, um, South Shore Shopping Center. Yeah, you build the housing, the, the sewer, the stormwater, the, it's all right there in the street. It's ready for you to just hook into. At Alameda Point, you have to rebuild all of the infrastructure. You have to rebuild the sewer system. You have to rebuild the water system. You have to re put in the joint trench for the power. None of the existing infrastructure meets any current standard and East Bay Mud will not accept it. PG&E will not accept it. So there is just the reality that before you can build 1,482 units, you have to build all the infrastructure and the streets for those units. Number two, um, the uh, fair housing law, big change from eight years ago when we did our last housing element. The state law has changed and has put a huge emphasis on, on what, we, what is termed in state law as fair housing. And one of the big concepts of fair housing is there's a history of unfair housing policy in California. And from this point on, every city and every decision has to be affirmatively 
furthering fair housing and reversing trends that have occurred over the years, over the last hundred years. Things like redlining, where people of certain color were prohibited from living in certain neighborhoods or buying property in certain neighborhoods. Things like zoning provisions, which followed in 19, after 1968, after the fair first fair housing law, and a bunch of cities started using zoning as a way of keeping certain income, um, you know, certain segments of the community which had certain incomes out of certain areas. Um, so essentially what it really comes down to is the state has created what are called high, medium, and low opportunity areas. So the state, not the city, the state has already mapped where is most of the low income housing in every city? Where are the best schools in every city? Where are the best transportation facilities in every city? Where are, the, um, where are people of color living in every city? Where are, you know, and sort of, and, and sort of broken this down essentially by census track and sub-census track into what they call high opportunity areas and low opportunity areas. It's a way of looking at all these past policies, past zoning provisions, past actions, how has it ended up sort of creating segregation within cities? Because everything the city has to do from now on is to reverse those trends. In Alameda, when you look at the state's high, uh, high opportunity area maps, not a big surprise. West Alameda, low opportunity. East Alameda, Harbor Bay, high opportunity. Northern waterfront, relatively low opportunity. Not as low as West, but lower than Central, Gold Coast, lower than Harbor Bay. And what state law is saying is you cannot put all your housing in the low opportunity areas, especially all that housing that's gonna include a lot of affordable housing. That's where all the existing affordable housing is. Those are the low opportunity areas. So we have to distribute it. Our, house, our arena across the entire city. This housing element is putting 25% um, in at Alameda Point, even though it is a low opportunity area. Um, our argument to the state is gonna be that's where our land is. And we are also providing housing opportunities and meeting our arena in medium and upper opportunity areas. So that's where we get to the next. So we've got the first 2000 units another 1400, we're about halfway there. So there's not a lot of land left. This is where the rubber meets the road, where we start talking about what do we, how do we encourage more housing in areas where there isn't a lot of vacant land? So the first places we looked and that we thought were great opportunities, shopping centers. We have about 100 acres of shopping centers. These are areas that are about 50% parking lots. We also know that the future of shopping centers in America is not a bright future. Like this is online shopping, shopping the old traditional auto-oriented single-use shopping center is not something that has a bright economic future. Um, these and many cities are taking this approach. Shopping centers are a great opportunity to add housing next to retail. Don't get rid of the retail, add the housing to the retail. 
And Alameda has four shopping centers that struck us as, as great opportunities. Um, and two of them, South Shore Shopping Center and Harbor Bay, are in high opportunity areas. So from a state fair housing perspective, we're putting a quarter of our housing and many of those first 2000 housing units are in West Alameda and the Northern Waterfront, which are low opportunity areas. These shop, at least two of the shopping centers, um, Harbor Bay and South Shore, which are two of the best opportunities are in high opportunity areas for future housing. So we're hoping that we can get about 1,200 units in the shopping centers over the next eight years. We know for sure we can get 800 at South Shore Shopping Center because we've been actively working with them and they're ready to go. Um, and if you look at the inventory, you'll see like, and it's a great example. We, we provided a little aerial map of the South Shore Shopping Center and we showed where they're proposing to put the housing. And it gives you, it's really just the two corners I mean, 800 units, and it's just two corners of the South Shore Shopping Center. The entire central area of what you know as the South Shore Shopping Center, Trader Joe's, Safeway, that whole mall area at the center of the parking lot, it all stays. The owners of the South Shore Shopping Center, I mean, they're like, we're, we're shopping center. That's what we do. That's, they, they don't want to get rid of the shopping center. They want to keep the shopping center. It's really these outer parking lot areas that they want to infill with housing. So 1,200 units at the shopping centers. Next, Park Street and Webster Street are best transit corridors in all of Alameda. The very best transit service in Alameda, Park Street and Webster Street. Buses going every 10 minutes or less. This is an, these, are, these are corridors that even the 1990 general plan said should be mixed use corridors. We should be encouraging housing over ground floor retail, traditional Alameda mixed use, main street development, residential above commercial. In 1972, the voters of Alameda met, passed measure A Change the zoning so you can't have multifamily housing. Change then in 1990, change the zoning to say you can't have more than 21 units the acre. Since 1972, the city of Alameda has not built a single housing unit on Park Street or Webster Street as a result of those zoning changes. There's about 400 units on those corridors today. Every single one of them was built before 1972. So what does this housing element say? It says we need to change the zoning. These, these are the two best corridors to build housing. This is where the transit is. This is, this is what, where transit-oriented housing should be going. So um, we are, this housing element says we should, we'll change the zoning. We're gonna allow multifamily um, housing. We're not gonna limit to 21 units the acre. Um, and for future workshops, happy to provide examples um, of, of, you know, density. This is always a hard thing for people to kind of imagine for the public. Like, what is what does 21 units the acre look like? What is what is um, 50 units the acre look like? You know, we have lots of pictures of two-story historic mixed-use projects. It's like in our station areas on Lincoln and Ensenal. 
one story, you know, those Victorian ground floor commercial spaces with the, with this, with the um, housing above, just one story above, 80 units the acre. For, for the last 40 years, we've said, we won't allow more than 20 units the acre. It's not surprising that we haven't built any housing. The building behind me is 43 units the acre. It's, I mean, you can do, that's, that, that building behind me has five units in it. That's 43 units the acre. We in Alameda today, we say if you do more than, you, by law, you can't do more than 21 units the acre. It's not surprising we haven't built any housing on Park Street and Webster Street. So Park Street and Webster Street. Now we're projecting, we're hoping optimistically that with those changes in the zoning, oh, and I should add also raising the height limit primarily on Webster Street, um, five stories, is sort of what we're thinking at this point. Fifth story set back about 15 feet so that you have more of an appearance of four stories when you walk down the street. The height limit today on Webster Street is three stories. The height limit today on Park Street is five stories on the, on the corridor, the main corridor of Park Street. Why have we not, why do you not see any five-story buildings on Park Street? Well, because we don't let allow multifamily housing, that's why. Um, so that's a major um, proposal. And that's the third document that President um, Saxby talked about that we, we posted on Monday, which is we have drafted all of this zoning. We've been having workshops with the planning board. So a lot of people have been looking at these zoning changes. So it's in our housing element, we talk about what we will do to change the zoning. What we've also done is we've actually drafted the zoning amendments so that people can really see exactly what we're talking about changing. Um, okay, so we talked about Park Street and Web Street. We talked about that. Um, okay, so we're still coming up about 1,100 to 1,200 units short. Well, there's what's left is the neighborhoods. The neighborhoods are the biggest area from a land perspective. As, you know, as I was telling you, we got about 100 acres of shopping centers. When you add up all the land on Park Street and Webster Street, it's, um, it's about 70 to 80 acres. Um, the real issue on Park Street and Webster Street, real small parcels, and not a lot of underutilized parcels. I mean, we can raise the height limit, but at the end of the day, we can change the zoning. At the end of the day, if you've got a viable commercial use going on on Park Street, Webster Street, um, the economics aren't gonna necessarily support going to a higher density housing project, even if the zoning allows it. So residential districts, R1 through R6, it's 1,200 acres. It's 12 times the size of these other areas that we're talking about. I mean, talk about a land resource. It's the neighborhoods. That's where the land is. We need to get about 1,200 units. Um, we have a very successful accessory dwelling unit program in Alameda. I think it's successful. Here's what I think is successful about it. Before 2017, we never approved second units in Alameda. We did about one every four years. We had a very restrictive permitting process. We had extremely 
restrictive um, entitlement process, unless you had a parcel that was over 7,500 square feet in size. I mean, who owns a parcel in Alameda, a residential parcel that's over 7,500 square feet? If you, if you didn't own a parcel that big, you had to go to public hearing. And the planning board would decide if the neighbors thought it was okay if you could have a house, if you could have a second unit in your backyard. As a result, we got about one every four years. In 2017, due to changes in state law, we changed our laws here in Alameda to say, no, that's not the way it's gonna work anymore. If you meet specified design standards and, and basic uh, criteria, um, you can get a building permit to build a um, second unit. It was, in the next year, we did 20. The next year after that, 2019, I forget the numbers. They're all in there in the housing element. But bottom line, every year it's gone up. In 2021, we did 79 accessory dwelling units. That's in one year. And why I think it's successful is we've been approving these. People have been building them. I We are not getting the the complaints that everybody was so worried about, about, oh my goodness, my neighborhood has completely changed. I mean, they're, they're just being quietly absorbed, 79 units a year. Um, I don't know if we'll keep at that pace, um, but you know, 70 times eight, that's, that's a big number if, you, if you're looking at eight year cycle. So um, the state has guidelines about this, about what they will give us credit for. They make us average the last few years. There's been a lot of debate and discussion. Well, our trend is certainly up. The question for the state will be, yeah, but of course it's going up Alameda because you started at zero. Question is, when is it gonna, when is it gonna tail off? This current draft says state, we think we will do a, about 60 a year over the next 80, over the next eight years. But that gets us to what, you know, six times eight, 480. We need to get to 1200. So what, what else do we need to do? So what we're really focusing on the zoning amendments, which are all included in that third attachment is how do we make it easier for people to add units? And so like I said, this building behind me, it's got five units in it. It's on a 5,000 square foot lot. That's 43 units to the acre. Um, this, from our perspective and this housing perspective, is what we should be trying to encourage. It stopped happening after 1972, after the passage of Measure A, because we prevented people from doing multiple units, more than two units in a building. Um, so we essentially are saying we should allow multifamily housing in the art three district, the R4 district, the R5 district, and the R6 district. Um, we're not trying to raise the density in the R, we're not proposing, we don't believe we need to raise the density in the R1 because we just did it with SB9, which is a whole another process that we just completed with the city council under state law. We're essentially saying in the R2, have single family and duplexes and keep it limited to 20 units the acre. R3, allow multifamily like the one behind me, and allow up to 30 units the acre. R4, 40 units the acre. R5, 50 units the acre. R6, 60 units the acre. In the hopes that people will do essentially what's happening behind me, you know, 
taking existing buildings, maintaining our existing sort of urban form, the existing character of our community, sort of like what happened with the second unit ordinance. Um, it's not a, immediately apparent that the character and form and, 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 the, and the, the sort of architectural, what I would say, excellence of Alameda neighborhoods has changed as a result of adding 400 to 500 units a year through our ADU program. How can we encourage another four or 500 units on top of that to allow people to do something more than second units, to allow people to convert existing buildings into three unit buildings, four unit buildings, five unit buildings, um, so that we can... The other advantage of this approach, of course, is we, 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 we wanna get affordable housing. That's, what, that's where the need is, back to that original thing. That's where the need is small units, small units above ground floor retail on Park Street and Webster Street, small units and buildings like the building behind me, those are just, without even without deed restrictions, those are gonna be the more affordable units. So that's the, that, I mean, that's basically our housing plan um, to get to over 5,300 units in eight years. Um, I think I should stop talking at this point. Um, and, um, uh, myself, Henry Dong, your secretary, has been very involved um, in this. You know, this has been a total team effort. We've been the zoning amendments alone are eighty pages. Um, so, just I'll I'll conclude with this. This is this is a six month effort, six to nine month effort. If all goes well, oh, last thing I'll say: process. Right now, in the middle of a thirty day public review period. So we're getting comments from the public. We will, around May 9th, that, that public comment period will end. We will review all the public comments. We'll decide what changes to make to the draft element. Next step, send it to the state. Unfortunately, they, may, they take 90 days to review it. It's, as I said at the beginning, we get, we're, we're writing for two different parties. We're writing for the city council and we're writing for the state. So around August, we will hear back from the state to find out what they think. And then I think we will have some very difficult decision-making to make. So, you know, because then we have to feel like, oh my goodness, the state wants this. How is that, how, what are we gonna have to do? How, how are we gonna have to change up our zoning or our programs and our housing element? Um, and that, that's gonna be some, that's gonna be some really interesting decision-making. This is all gonna be done very publicly. So, um, and then it goes to planning board. They, they decide what their final changes are to the housing element in response to the state. And then they send it to the council, November, December. So obviously the, I think for the historic advisory board, your input, your review, as many meetings as you wanna have, as much time as you wanna you know, put into this effort. Um, you know, I think then, you know, the next three, four months, huge, I think, you definitely might want to check in once we hear back from the state and give the planning board and some council some additional advice once once we know what the state is saying as well. With that, I will shut it down well, <laughs> and make myself available to answer questions. Thank you, Mr. Thomas. That was very informative um, and thorough. Uh, I think we're going to have some questions from our board here. Sure. Um, uh, one question that popped into my mind right away was, um, why do you think the the state will be critical of all the work that you've done? It seems like you've you've addressed every concern that they've had and more. 
in, in this housing element? We have the benefit of watching Southern California go first. And the state has getting a housing element certified in 2022 is very different than getting us a, a housing element certified in 2014, 2015. I mean, everything the state and the legislature has been doing over the last eight years has been ramping up the requirements uh, on local governments around housing and everything we're hearing from Southern California and from HCD themselves is um, they are taking a very different approach than they have in the past. And they're looking at everything very, very closely. And we've been looking at the letters that they've been sending back. Um, I, but that being said, I mean, we're going into this with that understanding. So we wrote a housing element that I feel and, you know, our consultants who have been helping us and who have been working with cities in Southern California. I mean, they've, they've, they're a little nervous about some of our projections, um, but we're writing a housing element that we think and hope we can get through state review um, quickly and easily and with few comments. I, so what I, do you think our weak points are? <laughs> no, don't go into too much detail there. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you Just where I think our weak points are. Here, here's where I think our weak points are. Um, and it's um, Park Street and Webster Street. I think we have a good plan. Can we get 400 units done in eight years? And the problem with Park Street and Webster Street, very few vacant parcels, first of all, like and what HCD likes to see, like point out, and you'll see when you go through that inventory, like we have every single APN listed of every parcel that we think will go, might happen over the next eight years. Um, but every single one of those parcels with very few exceptions has something going on right now. Also, they're very small parcels. So it, it makes it economically difficult to do housing on those parcels, unless you can maybe buy up three or four. Um, in a row, but that's very difficult to do. And let's say you're a small property owner on Park Street and Webster Street. Um, you got a retailer sitting on the ground floor, maybe not making a ton of money. Maybe you have a unit or two upstairs or an office space upstairs. You know, the economics of tearing that all down, losing that rent stream for two, three years, and then to replace it with a building that might be three or four stories, but it's still only a 5,000 square foot lot. I mean, you're not going to get 100 units. You might go from one unit to eight units. But why not convert existing office space, for instance, into oh, dwelling think, units? I think that's. I think that is a. That's what we're really hoping. I mean, that that's a more exciting model, anyway, for yeah. those. Areas. That ain't. I, I. But I think the question is, will we get? Will we get? 800, will we get 400, 400. in eight years? Yeah. I mean, that's the question. Will we get some? Absolutely. I think, you know, we've been spending, a, I've been spending a lot of time on Park Street, West Street on the whole parklet program and working with the businesses. And I constantly look up above the ground floor. I mean, there is definitely space. Um, but as you know, you're an architect, like, you know, you got to put in the plan. If it's an office. Yeah, there's work. There's work, there's money. And we're not talking about, you know, th these properties aren't owned by real estate developers. They're owned by 
you know, small business owners. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, I think that's one weakness. I'm worried. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about uh, them pushing back on that saying, yeah, we, we like what you're doing, but we're not, we don't think you're going to get 400. We'll give you credit for 200. Um, the other is of course the, the, the residential. I mean, we can't identify vacant sites in the residential. I mean, there's just not any residential. What we're saying is we're, what we're trying to argue with HCD is look what we did with second units. We, we loosened up the rules and now we're generating 60 to 70 units a year for a total over eight years, six times eight, 480 units. We're now gonna loosen them up some more. We'll let things like the building behind me happen. You should, we, we think that will generate another four to 500 units a year. I mean, over eight years. It's, well, I mean, it's been happening in Alameda for years. I mean, this this has been a program that's been, I mean, people have been converting these large Victorian homes into multiple units for what, 50 years now. I think, well, that's, that's our, that is our, exactly our case. You know, up until 1972, it was happening all the time. It would, had happened primarily, as I understand the history of Alameda, in the run-up and during World War II. That's when our population oh, really? was the highest ever. There was a huge demand for housing. Well, let's go forward 50 years. It's 2022. There's a huge demand for housing. What, why wouldn't we think that if we loosen up the rules and allow people to do what they could do in 1939 and 1940 with buildings like the one behind me, that we wouldn't get the same result? I mean, that's our basic argument. I think in HCD, they want to be like, well, where's the vacant lot? Show me the vacant lot. You know, and that's... That doesn't we'll exist in the Bay Area. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I mean, you know, I think, you know, showing them 10 acres of boatworks, aerial photograph, it's vacant. It's entitled for 182 units, like easy for the for the for the poor analyst in Sacramento check the box okay there yes get it this is a little bit more requires a little bit more of a convincing okay those are our two biggest weaknesses I believe oh third weakness <laughs> we're going to need to show them that we the city of Alameda can build 1400 units on our land in eight years that and all the infrastructure necessary. We have never been able to do that at Alameda Point before. So it's, I think we can do it. We can do it. It's gonna take political. Well, there's been a lot of work been. recently done there and yep. I'm sure that some of the infrastructure has been upgraded as part of that. We've started, we've started, but you know, it's just slow and it's hard. I mean, it's not, it's not because of just political will. It's, it's just Alameda Point is a difficult place to, to build, um, but I think I think we can convince them that we can do fourteen hundred units. Okay, what's uh, more questions? Do does anybody on the board want to? Board member Sanchez, you've got the floor. Thank you. Um, so thanks for your presentation, Andrew. Very much appreciated. Uh, first question I had was with regards to our arena numbers, is it units completed or units permitted? It, so with regards to ADUs, for example, I, I understand we had like 78 or 79 permitted over, you know, that time period. But the question is, they weren't all built. So do we get credit for ones that were permitted but not yet built? Well, basically, the way it works is if you issue a building permit, it, we get to count it. And, and, and what the way this plays out is every year we have to submit a report to HCD. So 
First, they certify our housing element as essentially the plan for the next eight years. And then every year we tell them, here's how many building permits we've issued. I think with ADUs, the thing that's interesting that we have seen, um, because we have a lot of people come in to the city and say, hey, I'm interested in an ADU, can I get permits to do it? Henry and the other planners review it for the requirements and say, yes, you can do it. Go for it. You're approved, essentially a planning approval. Then they go and find a contractor. Then they realize how expensive it is and they never come in for the building permit. If they come in for the building permit and get the building permit, I think it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good evidence that it that's actually going to get built. And, and that's and then an HCD takes the same approach. If you issued a building permit, you get credit for it. Okay. Thanks. Um, one other uh, question, which is maybe a little bit to Thomas's uh, earlier question about where where you think we are falling short of the state's expectations. Um, are you familiar at all with um, the state attorney general's um, recent comments about Encinitas? Uh, no, <laughs> tell us. So uh, this is, I, I get a weekly update from Rob Bonta. So a tweet of the week from last week is that they sent a letter warning Encinitas government that they must take action to correct state housing law violations. And uh, in big, bold letters, local governments follow state housing laws. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is the, the main... We're watching because the state is sort of divided into regions and each region has it on a different schedule. So we're, the Southern California cities are ahead of us in the process and we're watching what's happening with those cities. And, and that is essentially the main message here is that cities, our land use control, our power to zone land is given to us by the state of California. It's passed down from, from the constitution to the states, to the cities. And the, and the states have the right to say here, you can use that power within these limitations. And I think that's essentially what Rob Bonta is reminding the city of Encinitas. No, you don't get your zone. You don't get, you don't, we are not granting you the power to use your zoning to obfuscate what the state is trying to do. Um, and at the end of the day, that's kind of, I mean, we haven't talked about measure A and the, and the multifamily prohibition, but I mean, that's one of the things that we're here in Alameda we're struggling with and is our charter says no multifamily housing. State law says you shall allow multifamily housing. Like you can't just tell people that if you can't afford single family, you can't live in your city. Um, that's just, that's a problem with, you know, so that, that we're, we're, we're also addressing some of those issues through these changes. I noticed my light is getting back here. Yeah, you're in the you're in the shadows there. Let me turn on the light. Much better. Yeah, talking so much, I didn't even notice the sun had gone down. <laughs> <laughs> Board Member Sanchez, do you have some more questions? Uh, I I'll take advantage of. Sorry, I don't mean to monopolize, but one other one uh, on a more technical note. Um, so trying to understand how the density bonus plays into um, the, the zoning, you know, what's allowed by zoning, what's not allowed by zoning. So 
the way it, maybe you could walk us through that a little bit, Andrew. I'm trying to understand. Yes. There's a lot of uh, comments in Mr. Buckley's letter about discouraging developers from using the density bonus. And it seems to me that it, that's a difficult or a tall order. Um, and so I'm trying to understand sort of how it's used, how it's you know mandated by law, and then how does that actually play out in the reality of you know our proposed housing element? Great question, and something that we've been spending a lot of time thinking about, talking about. And I really want to thank Chris Buckley and AAPS because they really you know, their, their, their questions and their participation in this uh, housing element has been really helpful. I mean, you know, just critical thinking about these things. And this is one of the things that we've talked a lot about. For those of you who are not super knowledgeable on this, state density bonus law is essentially a state law that said, hey, if, if, if a developer or property owner comes in and offers us to deed restrict a percentage of their housing units in their project for affordable housing, because we need affordable housing, the city will give a density bonus. You will give them extra incentives. You will make it up to them. And it's usually, and the primary benefit is a 20% density bonus. So if the project is 100 units under the local law, that means the project can go to 120 units, for example. The other thing that density bonus law says is if you give what a city cannot do is say, okay, you get an extra 20 units. And the developer, the property owner says, okay, great. So I'll need one more floor to put those 20 units on under the height limit. I can't fit it. Like they, the developer gets to say, hey, this, your height limit is preventing me from getting the bonus units that, that you must grant me under state law. And essentially what state density bonus says is, a city can't use its height limit, for example, to prevent the developer from getting those additional 20 units. So that's the idea. First thing that is important, under state housing law, when we do our RENA, we can't count on that. That's not that when the state looks at our housing element, they're looking at our base zoning. And if we say, hey, in Alameda, everybody uses density bonus and we always give a 20% density bonus, so count an additional 20% on top. State law is very clear. You do not get to count those bonuses on the assumption that every developer is voluntarily gonna decide to grant, you know, to deed restrict. So from, from trying to get to our arena, we can't assume that. So, and our base zoning, we need to convince HCD that our base zoning is gonna meet our arena. We can't say, oh, but we're going to get bonuses on top. So give us, assume that. So um, I think the way that we have been talking about and thinking about it, um, in Alameda, the state density bonus has a, there's a variety of bonuses. You can get anywhere from 10% bonus to 35% bonus. We've had this, these rules on the books for 10 years. Almost every project has used it because they need to, to get around the multifamily prohibition. So that's the other sort of interesting twist, you know, with, because of measure A, we are forcing people to use density bonus. Um, but nevertheless, um, because we have inclusionary housing requirements that require 4% very low, and because state density bonus law says if somebody gives you 5% very low, they get a 20% density bonus, 
with the exception of, of one project in the last 10 years, everybody has gone for that 20% density bonus. It's just, it's the sweet spot. Like, hey, the city's already requiring 4% very low. One more percentage point on very low and I get a 20% density bonus, that's great. As opposed to going for a 35% density bonus. So we always think about the 20% density bonus. Um, when, and I think this really plays out when you look at our proposed zoning changes. And I think it really plays out primarily on Park Street and Webster Street. Let's say the height limit is four stories. No, let's, no, I'm sorry. Let's say the height limit's five stories in our zoning, which is essentially what we're proposing. And we're saying ground floor retail. So that's four stories of residential in that scenario, right? And who, it doesn't matter whether they're doing 100 units or 50 units in those four stories. Let's say the develop, we, we're gonna require 15% and, and part of that 15% inclusionary is gonna be 4% very low. Let's assume the developer says, well, geez, if I have to do 4%, why don't I just give you 5% and get a 20% density bonus? What's gonna happen? You're gonna get basically one more floor because you got four floors of residential. 25% bonus would be one more floor to get 20% more you're gonna need under one more, you know, you're gonna need basically another floor. Um, and, and so that's that's sort of how we're thinking about it. If you're, um, let's say you're the house behind me and you're saying, hey, I got five units and I'm doing one, I'm doing, I'm doing a, um, I'm gonna do five units and I'm gonna deed restrict one of them for, um, for low-income housing, that triggers state density bonus. They get a 20% density bonus. Well, you got five units. So that's one more unit. The developer might say, well, I need, I need to do a pop-up on the, you know, over the height limit, the height limit's 35 feet in this, in this zoning district. I needed to go one more. I need to do a unit on the roof. Uh, yeah, okay. You're right. We're going to have to, this building behind me might need a, a sec, another floor on top of it for that additional single unit. They have to show us that it's actually necessary, that the height limit is preventing them from getting their additional unit. Um, but you know, that's sort of, you know, those are two examples of a bigger project and a smaller project, how that kind of plays out. Does that answer the question? It, it does. Um, it, it explains the density bonus very clearly. Thank you. And then the other, I guess the other question is, so the, the thought process or the, or the strategy behind how you decide number of stories, number of units. So in other words, you could argue, well, if we, if what we really want is a maximum of five stories on Park Street, then do we set the limit at four stories knowing that it's quite likely that somebody's going to take the density bonus and go up to five stories, or are we by setting it at five stories thinking, well, that is going to disincentivize people from taking the density bonus, or are we going to wind up with six stories now because oh. we set it at five? I guess I I'm think, trying to understand what yeah. your thought is behind that. I think you have to take one, I take one big step back. Yeah. Let's say we all decide five stories is great. That is really what we want. And we really hate the idea of somebody doing a six story. So let's set it four. Okay. But now we're going to HCD and we're saying, you're just increasing the opportunity for HCD to say, really? You're gonna get 400 units? Hmm. 
with a four-story height limit? Your, your height limit today is three stories. Why do you think you're gonna get 400 units? I think we'll give you credit for 200. So now you need to go upzone some other area because you just lost 200 units on Park Street to meet Arena. So now, so it it's kind of this, it's like this big bubble, right? Like you, sure. we can push it down on Park Street and Webster Street because of this urban design consideration, which makes total sense. Sure. But it's going to push out somewhere else. And so I think, you know, now it's like, okay, now we don't need to, now we have to propose zoning that's going to get 1,300 units in the neighborhoods as opposed to 1,100. So, gotcha. you know, okay. that's how, that's how we've been thinking about it. And we aired on, so we proposed five stories on Park Street, Webster Street, knowing that we might get a six-story building. From staff's perspective, you know, we're, we just keep coming back to like, well, where do we really want the housing? Sure. We really want it on Park Street and Webster Street. That's where the transit is. And, the, and we keep thinking those units will be small. They'll be relatively affordable. You know, you're not going to rent a unit on Park Street and Webster Street, you know, for an exorbitant amount of money. It's going to be rental units. Um, they're going to be relatively small. Um, they're just, even without deed restrictions, they're going to be more affordable than the townhome at Alameda Landing or the sure. brand new rental project at Alameda Point. So that, that's how we looked at it. But okay. it's a policy decision, right? Like this sure. is this is this is a judgment call. This is sure. a, you know. Yeah. No, I I appreciate it, Andrew. That's exactly what I was trying to understand. Is sort of what the yeah what the logic behind setting those uh, those restrictions are. So thank you. And so, you know, we, we're, try, we're, we're pitching 400 units on Park Street and Webster Street. <laughs> We'd rather go to meet with HCD and say, hey, we're allowing five stories. Like, why wouldn't you think we'd get those units? Gotcha. Okay, thanks. Board Member Witt. Hello. Um, thank you so much for the presentation, Mr. Thomas. I um, appreciate it. Um, I think when we have these discussions, the one thing that, well, a bunch of things come up for me, but I think thinking about quality of life is very important, both for the people who are going to move to the island and also who, the people who existingly live on the island. Um, you know, I think we need to be having conversations about transportation when we have these conversations, because it's, I think that's where people go, right? They, 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 they think, you know, this many units is gonna make it really hard to live life. And it's gonna be a place that doesn't retain the charm or character of Alameda. I know that, you know, we we need to build the units and, that, and I'm, I'm, I'm for it. And I think, you know, we do have a housing crisis and we have to alleviate it, but we also have to talk about, you know, we have to talk about transportation. We have to talk about quality of life. We have to talk about utilizing smart design, you know, not that's, that's not necessarily, I think, a characteristic of Southern California, not to be super judgy, but, you know, we need to be on the cutting, the, the cutting edge of design in order to make these units that we're building great places to live and raise families and, and build communities, really. And so um, those are just sort of my, my comments and, you know, please, please let me know. And also, I would love to know what percentage of the units that are projected will be low income. Okay, let me take the last one first. Um, okay, great. Sorry, that The was need, the need, which is what the state determines 
essentially 50% of our 5,300 units. You know, the need is for, for affordable units, for low, very low, low, moderate income. Um, what we can do as a city in our zoning, we have a inclusionary housing ordinance that requires 15%. If somebody does density bonus, we might get a few extra percentage points. So you can see like, <laughs> how are you gonna get to, so we're, we're not gonna get to 50% de-restricted units. I think one of the things that also influenced us, if you read the um, housing conditions appendix, some of the things that jumped out at me, the percentage of the Alameda population that actually is classified as lower income and moderate income. I mean, I was kind of like, whoa, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I mean, it's a huge percentage of the Alameda population actually falls in those income categories, way more than I kind of realized. The other thing that I thought was interesting is a moderate income household in Alameda can afford a typical medium to small size rental unit in Alameda. Like you don't have to deed restrict to accommodate that. You just need to build some rental housing. It can be market rate. It doesn't need to be deed restricted. So what that really leads us to is multifamily rental projects do a huge job to meeting our affordable need, even though we're only requiring 15% deed restricted. Um, on your other issue, which is by far, in my opinion, the real issue that we struggle with here in Alameda, which is traffic and transportation. Um, you know, we clearly have the land. I mean, for the buildings, I mean, we have the space for the buildings. There's no question. And the people that come along with it, no problem. No problem. I mean, during the Second World War, the population was almost 90,000. We're only at 80,000 now. I mean, even in the history of Alameda, we've had 10,000 more people living here. It's our cars we don't have space for. It's our, it's our, it's our, uh, the way we move around as a society and our reliance on our automobiles. Um, you know, the Bay Area has grown so much in the last 20 years, but as a, as a, in the Bay Area and in Alameda, I mean, we haven't built any new roads. We haven't widened any roads. I mean, the Bay Area, we built a brand new Bay Bridge. We didn't add any lanes. I mean, we are, we are having to, we are changing the way, whether we're doing it knowingly <laughs> or consciously, but we are, we are forcing ourselves as a Bay Area community to change the way we travel because we are growing, we are bringing in more people, we are bringing in more jobs, but we are not making more space for more cars. So what does that mean? That means more efficient use of the existing roadway system. What does that mean? That means using buses and, you know, basically not all going on single occupancy vehicles. I think in Alameda, we have an incredible opportunity with our water, um, ferries, water shuttles, 
we are actively working on our transportation plan. And I think we're being very successful. We have, we're adding ferry terminals. We're getting very close to getting the water shuttle up and running. We added another transit line with AC Transit during COVID. We added a ferry terminal during COVID. So we are building those options. And I think the big biggest thing that we all struggle with, I do as well, like, how is this gonna work? How is this gonna work with all the traffic? Because I'm assuming I'm gonna need to, I'm still gonna be driving my car by myself every day to work. And that's, I think, what is gonna change over the next 20 years um, and will continue to change as the Bay Area becomes a more urban place. Um, we're going to have to change our travel habits. And to do that, we have to create better transportation systems with more options. Um, like 30% of our population gets in their car every morning, this is pre-COVID, drives down the South Bay, 30% goes to their jobs in San Francisco, 30% goes to their jobs, basically in Oakland, Berkeley, inner East Bay. The group that's going to San Francisco pre-COVID, they were all taking public transportation. I mean, not all, but a huge percentage. So when we did our transportation plan, we were like, hey, we don't need to worry about that group. That group's, <laughs> they're doing what we wanna do. The South Bay group, we kind of were like, well, I don't know, that's, that's just too big of a problem to even tackle. Like they're all they're going all over the place. They're going to Fremont, they're going to San Jose. Like, how do we do that? There's like 30% are driving their cars to downtown Oakland. Like, you know, that's, that's some low hanging fruit right there. That's, those are some transportation. Something's not right. Like, do you need to drive your, your car to downtown Oakland? There's something wrong. Uh, we, that's something we should be able to fix as a, as a city as with, and with our regional partners. Like Alameda doesn't do transit. We don't, we don't build bridges. We don't run transit. We work with our partners at WIDA and AC Transit um, and, you know, our TMA and stuff like that. So, uh, it, lastly, I'll say this, and I think, you know, I've been, I said it today at the mayor's State of the Union thing, question, this very same question came up today at a big, huge chamber thing. We, the way we're looking at it is we have a, we have a transportation problem here in Alameda, and we need to work on it. We need to make it better. We have a housing problem. We need to work on it. We need to make it better. And we need to make more housing options, but they're not, it's not one or the other. Like we have to work on both and we have to make both better. Um, and we certainly can't take the attitude of, because the state law won't allow us. Oh, you can't fix the housing problem until you fix the transportation problem. We don't have that option. We have to fix both and we have to work on both of them simultaneously. Okay, <laughs> I wanna make sure we have time for public comment. Our, uh, uh, Board Member Witt, do you have another question? Um, just one more thing. Um, so I grew up in Arizona, lots of space. Um, and it's one thing that I saw when I was growing up was developers, um, in order to build, they, they, they develop the infrastructure. You know, we, the, the city councils may put the, put the onus of that onto the, 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 the developers because they wanted to make the profits and they wanted to build. And so we got schools, we got, you know, community centers, we got, pools, we got parks, 
and, and, and sewer systems, because obviously in the desert, those things don't exist. And so I, I always see that as a very, like a, a very effective way of, of getting that infrastructure built so that we can support this, the population that, that will be on this island. Because, you know, we, even though the, it doesn't exist on the base, it will, it will be needed sometime in the future. So it, it, it's worthy, I think, of thinking about. So that's- Yeah, and, and I think it's a, great, it's a great comment and I, I won't talk a lot about it, but we essentially do that now. I mean, that's what we do. I mean, we, every, every housing project um, pays school fees. So every housing project is paying money to the school district. And that's based on a, a nexus study prepared by the school district, which said how much should every unit pay for. Um, and that's whether you're building a unit in your backyard or whether you're building a hundred units. Um, every single project in Alameda, in the Northern Waterfront, Alameda Point is building brand new infrastructure. I mean, the new projects, their sewer system, their water system, um, their power system is way better than the system that you all are living in in the historic neighborhoods. I mean, there's, and they're 36 inches higher. So when the sea rises, they're gonna be in way better shape. Um, the piece of infrastructure that I think is not getting built is the new bridges and roads and things that you might've seen um, in, in Arizona. And that's, I think, where the rubber meets the road, I guess is one way of saying it. Because I think that's the, that's the infrastructure that many Alamedans keep saying, hey, how come you're not making the developers build that infrastructure? I need that extra bridge is what I need. Um, and of course, that's, you know, to build a bridge, you need Oakland to agree to have a bridge land in their neighborhoods and, um, and you need the money to build it. And so it's, it's an interesting conversation for probably, I could talk all night about that. Let's save that for another discussion. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, other questions from board members? Do I see um, any raised hands? Oh, former Lau. Yeah, uh, hi, uh, Director Thomas. I have uh, two questions, quick question. I know you said a lot of people want to talk to you. So um, one question is I want to clarify, like, um, you know, you did mention about the ADU, it's a very popular right now. And uh, a little confusing is about the SB9. Based on, I know that ADU, the single family zone is only like two unit, two more units, basically. Uh, junior ADU and regular ADU. So that, but SB9, based on my understanding is that they can subdivide it, become two, one land, you be more than 5,000, you can sub subdivide it like become four unit. So what the city highly recommended is that people will do it because I, I saw Alameda very good on ADU, but if you try to push the people doing an SB9, so that will be become one more unit every law. So is it, I mean, how does CDP prefer that? And then maybe yeah. you can give more, more idea. This is one question. Oh, yeah. The, 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 um, so we just adopted our new amendments to the R1 district, which was required by state law, SB9. Um, and essentially what it means, as you said, I mean, every, every R1 property owner, there's about 9,000 parcels in Alameda that are zoned R1. Um, they're typically our larger lots. Um, they have been last year, they did a, those 9,000 lots, you know, they produced about um, 20 ADUs um, just last year. Um, so 20 property owners just last year in the R1 decided to build an, a, an ADU. And under state law, I mean, under our local ADU ordinance, they could have done two, like you said, they could have done an ADU plus a junior. 
most R1, that we only had a single application in Alameda where somebody chose to do two out of 79. So most Alameda residential property owners, you know, choose to do one. Um, now new state law, SB9, and it only applies to R1, not the other R districts, just the R1. But those 10,000 property owners now, they can do, they could do an ADU and a junior. Now under SB9, they can do two full units plus two ADUs. So it's four as opposed to three. So, it, but probably more interesting with the ADUs, I mean, you could build a unit in your backyard to rent. If you wanted to build a unit in your backyard and sell it, because you don't want to be a landlord, you couldn't do it. What SB9 allows you to do now, and what our new ordinance allows you to do as a property owner, if you're an R1 property owner, and let's say you have a 5,000 square foot lot with just a single home on it, you can now in the R1 district come in and split your lot in two so that you would have a vacant lot and your and a lot with your one house on it. The owner, you could sell that lot, the new half lot, you can sell it as a vacant lot and the buyer can do two units and you can still do one more unit on your lot because you can have two on your lot because you have your current house, you can add one more and you could split off. So. I, we don't, we're not expecting SB9 to have a huge impact in Alameda, you know, three versus four. We don't think there's a lot of Alamedan property owners who want to sell off a portion of their property. And I think probably the most telling thing, despite all the publicity and the news coverage about SB9 in California and the end of single family zoning and everything, we have not gotten a single application yet. I mean, we're in April, so it'll take time. I'm sure we will. I'm not saying we will never get any applications, but four months in, not a single application. Is it more difficult for the apply for SB9 in the city like, or than the ADU? Because you did mention about ADU. Okay. It's all over the counter. I mean, that's the other thing the state law is doing. They're, it's forcing cities to avoid public hearings and things like that. So from a what's easier, um, ADUs are super simple. It's just a building permit. Um, lot uh, SB9, if you want to do a lot split, it's it's a it's a parcel split, but it's still done over the counter. I mean, over the counter means no public hearing. So it's a more a little more complicated, takes a little more time. We gotta get an engineer involved. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a subdivision process of you know to create legal parcels. So it's a little more involved, but it's 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 not gonna be hard if if somebody wants to do it. Okay, I have a last question. So um you did mention about uh, you know the uh, Alameda Port uh, site. We need to do a lot for infrastructure because the building about one thousand four hundred eighty-two units. So, but for example, for like example, behind you on the building, you know, it's a it's a like five unit. For example, you later on because they can want to put, build more unit in the back or something like that. So, what I know that is uh, most of the Alameda uh, like all the infrastructure for the old building, like the, like the water pipe is only like probably just uh, uh, four and a quarter. I mean, not that big, you know, basically not that big. So the infrastructure wise, I think you still need to do a lot. Like example, the power need to upgrade from 100 to 200, from 200 to 400, something like that. 
And then like, why don't, why don't put more? I mean, I know you proposed for on the on another proposal is that for for more unit on on the behind behind you that kind of building. But however, why don't put more? Because seeing you guys do a lot for infrastructure on the bay port. I mean, you have another way you can improve another side because I mean more unit. You got my point, or? Yeah, well, I, I mean, as I said at the beginning, I mean, we think it's a pretty aggressive proposal to build almost 1,500 units in eight years at Alameda Point because of all the infrastructure. Um, um, so I, I think it's going to be hard to do more than that just in an eight-year period. Um, if we can, we will for sure, because um, it's one of the sites that we can we, we really have a lot of control over. Um, as opposed to upzoning the residential neighborhoods and hoping that other property owners will do something about their property. In this case, the city is the property owner at Alameda Point. So I think Alameda Point is a, is a great opportunity. And, I, and I, I kind of agree with you, like, why not? Like, let's push Alameda Point as hard and as far as we can. Um, but your, your point about the existing housing and, and, and the cost of upgrading existing little parcels and existing infrastructure for residential buildings to accommodate more units, it's expensive, especially now. I mean, construction costs, contracting costs, it's, it's not a cheap enterprise to add units to an existing building. And I think that's one of the things we're gonna struggle with as we go through the HCD process is, you know, we're getting 60 units a year or 50 units, 70 units a year through the RADU program. What makes us think that there's that many more Alameda residents who are willing to put that much, that kind of money and resources into adding units, especially in your, like what you're describing, where if they have to upgrade the water system on their property, if they have to upgrade the power systems, I mean, it's expensive. It's an, it's an outlay of, of, of cash that, you know, in the hopes that it pays off later. And, you know, most Alameda property owners are not developers. That's not what they do. <laughs> so I, I think it's it's an interesting dilemma and it's, it all comes back to this big, big question. How do you get more housing built? Um, and, and cities with their power of zoning can only do so much. I mean, we can, what state housing law is all about is removing constraints, which I think is an accurate way of thinking about it because that's really all the city can do. We can remove the constraints but then we need the private sector and the property owners to do everything else. No, my comment, just one comment. It's just like, because you push a little bit more harder in the, in the Alameda point, we can keep more about historical style, like yeah. sample behind you. This is what my point is. So Yes, I totally understand. And I think yeah. I, I totally yeah. understand. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. Board Member Sanchez, did I see you raise your hand again? No, passing on that. Board Member Jones, do you have any questions? Uh, well, I apologize. I missed a little bit of the meeting because I had some household emergencies. I have an infant at home. But anyway, um, uh, I, I apologize if this is repeating anyone, but um, we talk about units, but, um, you know, you have one bedroom studios, multiple, you know, and I'm just curious how that comes into play. Um, uh I just, I had so many questions, but I guess that was just my one um, small question about that. And then Alvin's question made me think of all these other questions about ADU, such as, um, and I think we've talked about this as a board, but as far as, you know, um, someone 
creating an ADU, how do you kind of ensure that that's used for housing and not like an extension of someone's home or other uses. But I think you made your point, Andrew, and I think it's really helpful when you're talking about removing the constraints because that's only um, what the city is able to do. So seeing it from that perspective has really helped me, but yeah, that's just basically what I have so far. Yeah, I'll just quickly comment, you know, from, from a state perspective, you know, whether it's a studio apartment or a three bedroom apartment, it's a unit and they just need to get to, they're just counting them. Um, from our perspective, from yeah. a city perspective and from what we're trying to do in the housing element, um, we tried with all of our zoning and all of our sort of programs with housing element to try to relieve the constraints, but really encourage and facilitate the smaller units. That's when you read through the housing demand and the housing characteristics. Um, what is it, where is the real need? The real need is for affordable, lower cost, smaller units. Um, that's where the need is. Um, it's not for the brand new single family detached home for 1.5 million. We're, we're, we've, got, we're, we're, we've got enough of those. It's, it's the real need is, is at the smaller level. So what we try to do is create a housing element and a set of zoning standards that would really force the issue, it really push it in that, in, in that direction. Got it, thank you. Okay, I think um, it's time for public comment. Do we have some speakers or how many speakers do we have, I should say? We have one public speaker, Christopher Duffy. Okay. So there's no need to limit the time on him other than the five minutes that is allotted. Um, so Mr. Buckley, would you like to talk to us? Chris, we can't hear you. I see your hand raised, but we can't hear you. Uh-oh. Maybe you took a break. <laughs> I put him to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's muted. There we go. Okay. Chris, are you uh there? Yes, now okay. I'm here. I'm trying to do this from my desktop and the speed and the mic wasn't working. So I switched to my mobile device. I was hoping to do a screen share from the desktop. Uh, I don't know if they've set up that screen share or not. I don't know if I can do this simultaneously, but I'll start talking. Um, so I uh, wanted to thank staff for the very detailed presentation and the very good questions from the HAB. Um, we've sent you some letters, you've seen those. A lot of the issues and letters have been addressed already in the conversation. Um, a couple of things that we'd like to point out, uh, some, some gaps in the presentation. One, it did not mention, by the way, could the timer show up? I don't see the timer here. And we're getting, we're getting feedback on your line too. There we go. All right, let me, let me yeah, fix that. Yeah, some very bad feedback. I think you have to mute one, one of your devices, Mr. Buckley, either your cell phone or your desktop you have to mute one yes let me try to take care of this and we can restart the timer okay thank you just just a minute it's, it's this is complicated <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, someday we'll back face to face 
Um, I'm having trouble figuring out how to do this. Um, I have an idea. Just maybe move the devices apart if you can take your. Well, this is probably worse. How's this? That sounds better. Okay, good. All right. Well, uh, a little feedback. So, so please start the timer again. <laughs> or, or maybe, okay, that's good. Thank you. Um, so a couple of things that you know, weren't mentioned in the presentation. Uh, one concerns the residential proposals in addition to the um, density levels and uh, height limits that uh, Director Thomas mentioned. There's also this um, residential transit overlay that covers much of central Alameda. That's a quarter mile within a high quality transit route, which is basically the 51 bus line. And that basically is proposing unlimited residential density and a 50 foot height limit. Um, so that needs to be factored into the discussion. It also feeds into what is probably Alameda Architectural Preservation Society's main concern that this very drastic upzoning and vast upzoning of the residential areas seems like overkill to get the uh, number of units that the draft general plan is saying is necessary in those residential zones. The count is 270 units over the eight year period. So it seems to us it's overkill to do that much upzoning and rather reckless since it'll be difficult to, to change it once it's upzoned. So we've been advocating for a more strategic approach, just specific areas. And keep in mind, those extra densities aren't limited just to existing building envelopes. It's also new construction. So if the intent is to promote the use of existing building envelopes, that should be part of the proposal. So that new construction is not eligible for that level of upzoning. Um, the, the state density bonus law, um, it's very glad that uh, board member Sanchez brought that up. Um, the 20% expectation for bonus projects, we think is too conservative. Uh, in Oakland, there's been more. I just saw one that had a 50% uh, bonus application. So we need to be cautious about applying the state density bonus law. Um, AAPS is proposing as an alternative to try to get more density, but to not get into you know, unintended consequences like height increases, is to allow more ADUs, particularly in the commercial areas, since those don't trigger height limits, but you still get density and they begin counted toward the arena. We've been discussing this with staff. Uh, so far, we haven't really gotten any, I think, definitive endorsement, but we really think that needs to be seriously considered. The with regarding Park and Webster Streets, um, we're concerned about this about the proposed uh, 50 foot and 60 foot height limits. The setback at 50 feet uh, might be helpful. Uh, we've long been advocating, you know, keep the existing height limits on Webster Street the same in the historic areas. The West Alameda Business Association has been recommending that too, but go higher outside the historic areas. 
Similarly, in Park Street, the, it, there's a, currently a 60-foot height limit, but uh, pardon me, there's 45 feet in much of it, but uh, you can go to 60 feet with a use permit. Uh, yes, there's been no residential projects because of Article 26, but with the density increases, even with the existing height limits, we would expect you know, much more residential development, including conversion of the upper floors of existing commercial buildings. Um, a couple of other things, and these are really kind of questions. First, the question to uh, Director Thomas. So the city council will be having a workshop on April 19th, but will the council be making any kind of decision or provide definitive direction before this, this goes to HCD? Will there be a second council meeting before the housing element is sent to HCD? Uh, that's a question. Another bit of information for the HAB is the 50, the rent mentions made of 5,353 units for RENA, but there's also in these numbers, a surplus of 20%, an additional 1,060 units for a total of 6,413. So these extra 270 units in the residential districts are really part of that surplus. They aren't part of the 5,353. I'm running out of time. Thank you for the five minutes and for your patience with my audio uh, difficulties. Thank you, Mr. Buckley. So uh, are there other speakers or was that it? There are no other public comments at this time. Okay, back to the board. It's, uh, I know we've been sort of asking questions and making comments at the same time, but here we are at a, at a time when we can make some of our comments on the, on the plan. Um, would anybody like to start? Board Member Sanchez. Uh, well, I guess um, maybe we could give uh, Director Thomas a chance to answer the, the question that was posed by Mr. Buckley, but um, one of the, so I didn't quite understand Mr. Buckley's point about the 20% surplus. Is that based on the density bonus? It, no, okay. Um, so maybe you could address that as well, because I, I didn't quite get that one. And then there was one other point that was included in his uh in his letter that uh, maybe if you can address, uh, I'm not sure whether this is something you can address, but with regards to uh, limiting density by classifying units as ADUs, I, I wasn't clear on what he was getting at it. Are we basically saying we're going to build a five unit building, but call it one main structure with four ADUs attached to it? And is that possible? Um, it seems like the definition of the ADU would be mandated by the state and would preclude that from being feasible. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, I will just, I'll give you three quick answers on this. Um, HCD um, recommends and basically requires for all cities, and it's, they call it the buffer. There's a concept under state law that if, once you get your housing element certified, you gotta keep those numbers up. Like if any single property comes in and for some reason says you, you told the state and your housing element, you were going to do a hundred units on a site and the developer comes in or the property owner comes in and says, I don't want to do a hundred. I'm just going to do 50. That's called no net. There's a concept in state law, no net loss. Like, okay, if that happens now city, you, even though it wasn't your decision, even though you zoned it, but you promised the state you were gonna get 100 units on that site. 
So now you need to go upzone some other land to get that turn. So what, what HCD is sort of saying is like, you need to have a buffer of 20%. Well, they say 15 to 30 is what they say. We're going in with 20. <laughs> um, uh, city council hearings. We're gonna have, um, we are having a meeting with the count. We have a public hearing on the housing element at the, at the planning board. Monday night, April, whatever that is, 14th, um, or no, April 11th. We've got a public workshop with the council on scheduled for April 19th. The public comment period ends May 9th. We'll probably spend two weeks going through the, all the public comments that we received from the planning board and the council, make changes to the housing element and send it off to HCD. Um, you know, I think from our perspective, like I said earlier, like this conversation gets really interesting after we know what HCD thinks. <laughs> then, then we know, like, are we close? Are we, if we need to fine tune, what do we need to do? Um, so, um, you know, our plan isn't to go back to the, the council again, or to answer Chris's question directly. Our, our thinking is one, workshop with the council. If there's anything in the draft housing element they hate, obviously we will we'll change it. Um, uh, but, you know, our point to the council will be like, you know, we can, we, can, we can pair everything way, way, way down, but just then expect, you know, what we don't want to end up is a big long back and forth with HCD, then putting everything back up again. Um, ADUs, this is a, a really kind of intriguing proposal that, that Chris and APS have put forward, but from staff's perspective, it's, it's somewhat problematic. What Basically what Chris is suggesting is, um, and we agree, we, we care about the urban form. We care about height limits. Like that's what we're all trying to try to figure out. What's the right size for buildings? Yes, we want more housing, but we also want to sort of maintain a certain urban form, a certain height of size of buildings to, to you know, I mean, our, especially Park Street, Webster Street, great great sort of historic urban fabric. Like let's not mess it up with some really terrible buildings. Um, and AAPS is very concerned about density bonus because developers can come in and waive height limits. You know, and an example I gave before, I mean, it's not like, oh, they get to waive it and go to a 20 story building, but you know, we say five stories, they might do six. That's, you know, we prefer five. Um, so the idea was, uh, as I understand the AAPS proposal was, you keep the really, you know, only 20 units the acre, sorry. That's what our rules are. You get 20 units the acre. If you want a density bonus, you can get to 25 units the acre, but fine. That, if, if, you wanna, if you wanna use density bonus, that's, that's what you get. And you're only gonna get 25 units the acre. And we kind of know that doesn't really work on Park Street and Webster Street because we haven't built a single project that way. But, write the code to say, but if you want to do ADUs, you can do as many as you want. So don't do units, do ADUs. And there's this piece of state housing law that says ADUs don't count towards density. So it was, it was trying, to, trying to open up the opportunities for ADUs in neighborhoods. Like if your zoning says you can only have one unit per lot, well, you don't count the ADU as a density. So 
So sort of the APS proposal, let's treat, look at ADUs. Like maybe that's a way to have unlimited housing without triggering density bonus. It, it, a couple of problems. One, you're relying and hoping that HCD is not gonna say, wait, a unit is a unit. Like, and a developer saying, wait a second, I'm doing a hundred units. You city can call it whatever you want. I'm calling it a hundred units. And I'm telling you that I'm doing 5% very low. So you have to give me a 20% density bonus. And just because you call it an ADU and not a unit, I don't see how that, how you can argue you, I'm not eligible for a density bonus. I'm giving you 50, 15 units that are deed restricted. Um, that that's, seems to me I'm eligible to say density bonus. The other thing that we would have to do if we said they're not units, therefore they're not counted towards density, the presumption is we're also gonna say they're not subject to our inclusionary housing ordinance. So we're not gonna deed restrict these units. Um, okay, I mean, so, Maybe we're avoiding density bonus waivers. Maybe we're a little nervous that a good lawyer will just shoot holes right through that argument and say, hey, if we, if we, if we give you the affordable units, you have to give us a bonus. It doesn't matter what the city calls them. Um, the other thing is to set this up, we would basically have to say, yeah, you can have unlimited units and we're not gonna put any affordability requirements on them of any kind. You're exempt from our inclusionary housing ordinance, which is another interesting policy decision because isn't that what we're trying to do is get more affordable units. Um, so it's just an interesting trade-off. Um, from our perspective, it's staff's perspective, we don't think it's a very viable strategy in an effort to avoid state density bonus. Um, if that's you know if that's the goal of the whole thing is avoid the state density bonus, you're probably better off just lowering the height limit by a floor, and 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 tackle that conversation with HCD. They may not give us credit for 400 units. Maybe they only give us credit for 300. Okay, well now we just we've shifted a problem now just to the neighborhoods or some other area. Um, I think the other thing, obviously, I, I do think also every single project in Alameda for the last 10 years has done state density bonus. That's because they're forced to. You can't do multifamily housing in Alameda without state using state density bonus. By the zoning changes we're making, where we're now making multifamily permitted, now whether a developer wants to use state density bonus is really a choice. For the last 10 years, there's been no choice. If they wanted to do a townhome development, if they wanted to do an apartment building, if they wanted to do rental housing, the only way to do it in Alameda was through dense state density bonus. And all they really wanted was the waiver from the multifamily prohibition. And then they're like, oh, we also get a, a density bonus and we get to waive all the other requirements that we don't like. Huh, what a beautiful system this is. But, um, so it's just an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic that we've set up in Alameda at really as a result of measure A. But isn't that, you know, working against our affordable housing goals that, you know, the, the density bonus provides an incentive for people to build affordable housing. And if you're, if you're pre-zoning everything so they don't need that density bonus, then you're basically saying you don't have to build affordable housing, even though our need 
is great. Well, let's, I mean, I think the thing about the density bonus law, which is for me a little frustrating, they get to waive everything. I know that's really frustrating. <laughs> and, but what are we getting in return in terms of affordable housing? We're already requiring 15%. They add one more percentage point on a hundred unit building. That's one more affordable unit. And it triggers the bonus. It triggers all the waivers. Um, so it's not like we're getting a ton of additional affordable housing as a result of state density bonus. We're getting very little additional housing. So I, I'm a big fan of trying to set up a zoning system that doesn't really incentivize people to utilize the density bonus ordinance. But, you know, there are a lot of people who agree with you who are like, no, no, we should hail the more density bonus projects, the better, because it's more affordable units and it's more units overall. That's not necessarily my position. I'm just yeah, no. pointing that out. Um, yep. No, I, I would like to see developers have less options when it comes to the density bonus that the height restrictions and the, you know, that kind of thing are very problematic for existing neighborhoods. And um, just, you know, I would like to have Alameda allow greater densities within existing building envelopes, you know, even to the extent of unlimited densities. Um, but to keep those building envelopes instead of allowing buildings to increase in size. Um, well, since I have the floor here. <laughs> uh, so I, I agree with uh, Mr. Buckley's comment about the transit overlay. I think this is a really problematic uh, provision in the, the, the housing element and it really does need to be more targeted because I just, I can't see, I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, everything within a quarter mile of say Santa Clara Avenue includes all sorts of historic neighborhoods and older neighborhoods. And we're allowing, a, we would potentially be allowing a 50 foot height limit where most of the existing buildings are probably in the, you know, 25 to 35 foot height range. Um, and I, th I think that, you know, once we start getting closer to Webster Street and Park Street, those height limits make more sense. But between Park Street and Webster Street, it, I think it really becomes very problematic. And we have all sorts of, I don't know if you had a chance to go on AAPS's uh, house tours that they have annually, but, you know, the like the area around the stations um, was featured in 2020 and it's, it's just loaded with Marcusa and Remmel homes that are, you know, beautiful, very significant um, elements of Alameda's character. And, you know, to allow a 50 foot building in those areas would just be, it would be very destructive to the, the character of our island. And likewise, you know, say San Antonio or some of the streets on the opposite side of Santa Clara and, and Lincoln, um, those are all within that quarter mile zone, which, um, you know, I think it would, it, it's just a big mistake to allow that transit overlay to extend into our established neighborhoods. And they really should be focused more about along the corridors of Webster Street, Park Street. Um, so I'd like to see that thought through a little bit more carefully. But I do think that, you know, you can add density within existing building envelopes 
as has been done for years and years in Alameda, whether with permits or without, um, and, and still maintain the character of those neighborhoods. Um, you know, the, the rezoning, upzoning, I think is also problematic for a lot of these neighborhoods because um, it, it will open up the door to all sorts of density bonus provisions. Um, basically, you're reducing the size of lots. Uh, you're giving more benefit for a number of units. And I think what, what you get five units and then all of a sudden you're available, the zoning, zoning density bonus is available to you. And you're, you're reducing the size of the unit per area in each one of these zones. And so you're going to get higher density and more uh, density bonus requests. And um, again, I don't, I, I think that's going to have a very negative impact on our established neighborhoods. And I'd rather see it again, that we work toward allowing density within building envelopes, instead of just allowing uh, developers to come in and build housing that doesn't really have to follow any of our current zoning regulations. And I don't think that the Alameda Preservation Ordinance is adequate to protect these neighborhoods. Um, the, you know, the, uh, you know, what we decide as a board really can be overturned very easily. And uh, I don't think that the, the demolition ordinance is really adequate to protect these neighborhoods. And at the, the way that the housing costs are going up so much and so fast, I think it's encouraging real estate development or investors to buy into our housing market and discouraging homeowners. And so these kinds of zoning changes actually are working against homeownership in Alameda. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily good for our community. Uh, again, focused in the right areas, those kinds of zoning provisions make sense. Um, Park and Webster Street, what I see is one and two story stories over retail as our existing sort of form in those areas, especially in the older portions of Webster Street and Park Street. And we're proposing to go five stories, six stories. It's not gonna be compatible at all. Um, we have to, and the, the step back provision I think is good. You know, that it makes sense to step back as you go higher, but you know, if you look at like a Kroll's building on, at Central and Webster Street, it's what, one story over retail? And you're gonna put a 50 story building or 50 foot high or 60 foot high building next to it? Doesn't make any sense. Again, I think that the zoning changes like that need to be really targeted towards areas where they're not impacting historic developed areas. Go up Webster Street to Atlantic, um, I think in those areas where it's newer development, that the height limits will have uh, much less impact on our community. Um, but in the historic district, in fact, in Park Street historic district, I think that should be regulated by the Secretary of Interior standards, not by our zoning laws. That everything that's within the historic district should be compatible with that district and the height limits that are already established in that district. We're, we're looking to develop in those areas in ways that are subordinate to the existing buildings, not towering over them to be compatible with the historic district. Once you get out of the district, stepping up to higher height limits 
makes sense to me. Um, but you really, I think we're, we're talking about preserving important portions of Alameda to preserve those historic character areas and not let development come in and basically, you know, disrupt them. Um, and I think the same is true with the stations district. Um, it, it's, it's one story or two story over retail. Uh, going up to 45 feet, I think is problematic. Um, so, you know, I'm concerned about height limits. I'm concerned about upzoning. Um, I, th I think that the, you know, overall, the, the, the things we talked about tonight are all, you know, they're very admirable goals and I, you know, we, we need to find solutions to them. But I also think that one of the things that I a sense is missing from this whole picture is, um, is a discussion of preserving Alameda's historic character. I mean, we're talking about changing everything, upzoning everything, making everything taller, you know, in the right places that makes sense in our older established neighborhoods. And, and, and Alameda really does have sort of a treasure of older neighborhoods and buildings. Um, then those, those sorts of changes can be very problematic and, and have a negative impact. Um, and since we're gonna be <laughs> picking this up again in a, in a few weeks, I, I won't keep on going. I, I can keep on going, but um, that's sort of the, the, the gist of my comments for tonight. And I'd like to offer the floor to someone else. Board Member Witt. I have one question. So I keep, I keep coming back to this, this um, making sure that people are happy, you know, and, and, and one of the ways that I think might be, we might be able to do that is, I, is there, and it, it comes with a question, sorry, when I have these and I can't hear, um, is there a minimum, is there a minimum for de de that developers have to meet per unit? Minimum floor area? Yeah, because, you know, people need a certain amount of, of square footage to be yeah. happy. I mean, there's there's building code requirements for, you know, minimum size of units, but it's the, those are very small sizes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I, 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 interesting question. I, it, I love, you know, the way you started off was really interesting. Like, what's going to make people happy? Um, I mean, you know, that's, I think you have to really think about, like, Okay, which people are we talking about? I mean, are we talking about the people who are worried about getting evicted from their current unit and might be living in their car? Because that little 450 square foot unit would probably be like really make them happy. Right. Is it the family with three kids that really needs a four bedroom house in a backyard for the dog? Probably not going to make them happy. And you know, so I think it's it's an interesting question. I mean, the person who is living outside of my window at City Hall under the stairs, I mean, it would make her really happy to have that little tiny unit. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff we're trying to, I mean, we're just, a lot of the, some of the sites are literally designed for people who are coming off the streets. So I, it's an interesting question, like what makes I, people happy? I, I think I asked that question I asked that question because I want to make sure that someone is paying attention to it. Oh yeah. No, I, look, I, it's a, I interrupted you. You had, no, you, that's you it. That? That, that was it. 
you understand. Yeah. I, you know, the other thing I just, it's, it's the other thing about it's, it's a little bit infuriating about the way we're not infuriating, frustrating. We all want to manage it. Like, but another piece of state law is like hands off, hands off city. Like, you know, so, I mean, one of the more frustrating things is our, we have a wonderful ordinance, our universal design ordinance which is, you know, ensure that every unit is accessible. And, you know, we go beyond ADA requirements here in Alameda for all these great reasons. Um, and yet people are using state law to waive those requirements because they're like, hey, hey, you're constraining my ability to build housing. I want to build the housing units that I want to build. And state law is really more and more and more saying, hey, you city planners are down there at the planning department back off with all your regulations, um, back off with all your micromanaging. Um, and it's, it's, so it's putting people, I think like the, your board and city staff in a tough place because we do want to manage it and we do want to control it. And we do want to make sure that these units and these buildings are compatible and work well and make people happy and, and contribute to our beautiful city. I mean, it's a beautiful, city with great historic neighborhoods. How do we manage that? I mean, my reaction to Chair Saxby's comments is, well, things are going to change. I mean, we can't keep things the way they are. They're going to change. We just have to manage it really carefully. And then I, before I say that, I'm like, wait a second, Andrew, don't say that. Because e even our ability to manage it is slowly being kind of taken away through changes to state law. So it's, you know, our it, it, it's a it's a really tough it's a it's a tough problem we're all struggling with. Yeah, the, but the you know the the lack of zoning can also be very problematic oh. and and chaotic. You know, you have a city like Houston, Texas, for instance, where I mean this city sprawls all over the place. We couldn't do that here in Alameda, but but there and then there's all sorts of crazy uses you know in residential neighborhoods that you you know are just just ridiculous. And so, you know, we do have to control yeah. our planning. Oh, and I'm, I'm afraid that we're offering so much that, you know, we'll never be able to, you know, pull back from it. That, you know, we have to, we have to meet our arena standards, there's no doubt. But if we, if we just give all that we have right now, where do we go from there? We just, you know, we, we, we should be very targeted in what we offer to the state as part of our um, housing policy. And if they comment back that they need more, then that's it. But, but you know, uh, if we offer too much, then we'll never get it back. Let me just, in terms of process, and I totally hear you, and I think it's, let me just clarify a couple. We're not sending our zoning. I mean, we, we published it for public review. We, we, you've, one of the exhibits to your package today is 80 pages of zoning changes. This is where the transit overlay concept right, is right. embedded. This is where the height limits are. We're not sending that to the state. And I think, um, the other approach we took, we started with the projects, the way I presented, we, st we, we, we really, we figured out the projects, we got those done. We then moved to the shopping centers. I think we got a pretty precise approach for the shopping centers. Then we moved to the Park Street, Webster Street District. I think we still as a community and with your help and the, this board's help, 
and the planning board. We still have some work to do on the Park Street and Webster Street stuff, the historic versus the non-historic, what are the height limits? How do we deal with density bonus? I mean, that's still up for discussion. I think there's still some fine tuning there that can be done around around the kinds of things that you're talking about. Right now we're treating the historic portions of Park Street and Webster Street, the same as we're treating the non-historic portions that we don't necessarily have to do it that way. No. We could make that those changes in the next iteration of the zoning. Um, the other, and then the other one that's even less fully fleshed out because we left it to the absolute end was the neighborhoods. This, we went to the planning board a couple of weeks ago. We were like, hey, we got a sort of a base zoning approach where we upzone all the districts, you know, get rid of the multifamily prohibition and the R3 through R6 and, and no dense and no residential density standards at all. Or that, that would be a sort of a blanket approach. You know, all the residential districts, all 1200 acres. Or we could go to this other approach, which is a transit oriented approach. Like we create a transit overlay district, which is, it can be a quarter mile, eighth mile. And it's like basically, we just really open things up there because that's where you want the new housing to go, right? Or along the transit corridors, like Santa Clara is the big one. Like, and it, it was interesting, we, we sort of went to, a, it was a workshop, it was like this. We were just sort of talking through ideas we posed it in our staff report as an option, like, let's pick one. And the planning board sort of caught us off guard and we're like, well, we kind of like aspects of both. We should see if we can kind of create something that has a little bit of both in it. So I think what you see in our current zoning for the residential districts, which has this base zoning changes plus the transit overlay, it's not fully baked yet. We still need to think about that. We still need to work on that. Um, we may, and so I really, I think for the next, um, I guess where I'm heading with this is for our next meetings with the historic advisory board, if we're gonna follow up next month, which I think we are right in yes. May, back, you know, I think those are the kinds of questions that the, the, the areas which would be just really helpful to have you guys be thinking about, talking about um, and, um, you know, because there's there's still there's still quite a bit of work to be done in those areas. Well, and well, I think at the end of the day, that's where the rubber is going to hit the road. That that's that's people are people care about that stuff. They Absolutely. Really will Will the city um, be providing a, a diagram or a map showing what that quarter mile uh, uh, overlay looks like, as far as you know, putting it on a street map of Alameda? Yes. Because that's to me, it's kind of a mystery, but it, it's probably a, a large percentage of, you know, our neighborhoods. Yeah, I, we will for the next meeting. We'll bring those maps. We've been working on different maps. Um, Alameda actually has pretty good transit, and you're right. If you do eight, if you do quarter mile around all transit routes, it's basically the whole, almost the entire main island. Um, if you do eighth mile, um, you know, around the sort of the major corridors plus the good transit routes high you know there's some ones that have basically 15 minute service on weekdays and stuff you also still end up with a fair amount of the island so we've been looking at that we'll bring those maps um after doing the maps i think staff is starting to feel we are starting to feel like 
you know, you just let's deal with the base zoning, the transit overlay sort of laid on top of a upzoning of the main districts. Um, you know, I'm not sure. The other thing that's so weird about the overlay and the 50 foot blanket height limit, whether it's 50 or 40, you measure exactly a quarter mile or exactly an eighth mile over, you might be in going for, into an R1 district. And now on one side of the street, the height limit is 30 feet. And on the other side, it's 50 feet and it's both R1. Like it just. This is the Houston problem. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think we're, <laughs> I mean, let's, uh, we're still working through it at the staff level, Henry and I and the other planners, we're looking at this, we're having these very same conversations internally. And we've just sort of, we've just sort of opened it up to everybody, like, help us figure this out. Let's, let's figure this out together. Yeah. Well, that's why I think that, you know, looking at increased densities within existing envelopes is, is a better way to go. Because you're not going to have that kind of disparity from one side of the street to another. You will have greater densities, but that's less of an impact. Um, other comments? I'm not seeing any raised hands. Oh, Actually, one comment. Yeah, so um, you guys did mention about that, the uh, transit overlay. So, so I see it is, I don't know if it's possible or not, like, like on Park Street in Webster. Webster have a more bus or something. So the standard between Park Street and Webster can because Park Street have a more historical, and this is what I feel, I'm more, more historical on that. So can we do the different standard? Like example, meaning like uh Webster have a, allow more more and more level when you build something, allow more level, and Park Street is like a little bit more restriction. Can we do that? Or you you might yes. do it like on like kind of like consistent between the two because I feel it's like some people like the modern city, some people like the um the more historical. So if you like historical, you go to the Park Street. If you like more modern, you go to the website. I mean, just personal thinking the, about it. The answer to your question is yes. We we don't have to treat them exactly the same, um, and that's true of um, in terms of and this is just an aspect of of state law. Let's say we're, if we're talking about things like density, if we're talking about things like height limits, you can treat them differently. The other piece of state law that we're working on, we haven't talked about at all, is more of the fair housing thing. Like you can't say, oh, well, they're, you know, Park Street, you know, you can't have, uh, you can have, um, what's a good example? Uh, single room occupancy. Like, oh, that's okay there, but not there. No, because you, now you're talking about the types of housing that certain types of people might need. And you know that starts to become exclusionary. Like, oh, you need single room occupancy? Well, you can live in that neighborhood, but you can't live in that neighborhood. So we can't do that. But in terms of building heights, density, the types of things we've been talking about tonight, absolutely, you can decide, even on Park Street itself, like uh, President Saxby was saying, like we could say, hey, North Park Street, Lincoln, the bridge, 60 feet. Historic Park Street, Lincoln to Ensignal, 40, 40 feet. feet. <laughs> yeah, you could, you know, you can, you can, you can fine tune it. You can adjust it. Yeah. I think, I think that's exactly what I was asking for consideration of is that there could be a lot more fine tuning and sort of a broad brush approach will have a negative impact. If you zone the whole area for a particular height or density. 
And then the only thing, I mean, we, we, and then we just have to go back and it comes back the, 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 is then it all trickles back to Appendix E, land inventory. And that's where HCD will then go through all of our sites. You'll see, if you go there, you'll see a big long table of parcels on Park Street and Webster Street and our estimates of the number of units we could get. And so if we come back and say, okay, we're gonna actually not be as liberal on a portion of Park Street, we're gonna have to go back to that table and go, okay, which of the parcels that we looked at in that table are in that portion and we'll have to refine down our numbers. So now it's not 400, it might be 360 or 300, and 300 units on Park Street. Or move those okay. units to a different part of Park Street. Exactly. So we just move, we have to then find some other place where we can argue that we can get, we can accommodate them because we've loosened up the zoning in this other area to accommodate that. So it's just a, it's a big numbers game. Yeah, and it seems to me that, you know, the higher density and uh, higher height limits you know, closer to our bridges and our access points, you know, makes sense. Because yep. then it, it will enable people that want to walk or ride their bike um, besides public transportation to, to utilize those. Other comments? I'm not seeing any other comments. So uh, we're gonna bring this back at our next May meeting. Um, but for tonight, we're closing the discussion on the, the housing element. And we'll move on to item eight on our agenda, which is board communications. Does anyone have a board communication? Director Thomas. No, I just want to say thank you. And oh, you're leaving us? <laughs> well, thank you. I, you know, it was very informative. And, uh, you know, I learned a heck of a lot today, more, more so than tonight than I did reading all the materials that I was going through. Um, I will see you in a month. Great. Um, for when I come back for our next hearing, I, you know, I'll basically give you any updates, anything that's changed. Um, but essentially, same materials, same, you know, the housing element's not going to change between now and then. The zoning, we, we will just, we'll just sort of pick up the conversation. I'll bring some extra maps and some um, some of sort of staff's most recent ideas and also tell you kind of what we've been hearing because we'll have had a public workshop with the planning board and with the council between now and when we re-meet with you. So um, we'll also be able to kind of give you a flavor for kind of what, what they're thinking and what they're saying as well. That sounds great. Um, All right. I look, I look forward to that discussion. Thank yeah, you. Fun. All right. Good if night. you like planning, this is what it's all about, right? All right. <laughs> I like planning. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I like to see it. I like to keep the regulations in place to, on, some, on some level. Good night. Good night. Good night. So uh, board communications. Do we have any uh, board member wit? I have a question. So, I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed, I'm allowed to ask it in the, in this format, but you know, I, when you know when you drive to Target and right by the Pasta Pelican and like there's the senior housing there, they're built. They were building a huge building that was right there behind, um, right also by where the Shipways was. So if you just keep going by Shipways, there's a huge new building there. Yeah, about behind the <laughs> the tunnel tube entrance. Yes. Um. So I drove by there uh, two days ago. And they put up the sign and it's a giant, I thought it was going to be housing. I thought it was going to be housing, but it's a giant storage center now. It's going to be for, it's a giant building for storage. 
And I just sort of wonder That's why, mystery. why, how did, how does that happen? Given that we has a, we have a housing crisis and that we need to utilize every possible opportunity to build housing. So how does, how does something like that get approved and, 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 and built? Yeah, that's, um, I think it's like a four or five story um, storage building um, for personal storage. I was screaming. Um, yes. Yeah. And I think it's been works maybe a couple, couple of years ago when they went through the planning board for that. But that site is like an industrial site. So that's why it's, it's more um, limited to that type of development. But there's senior housing literally right next door. So yeah, down the street, right? Yeah. No, right in the same area. So it's like that it's, it, it's industrial, but it's okay for seniors. Yeah. The, the oh, one no. on the, the, the Cardinal point, um, yeah. senior housing, right? Yeah. That's like a, um, commercial, you know, commercial manufacturing, whereas the, the storage building, I think it was like a M2 or something, um, site. I just, I just, I just want to make sure, I just want to know how do we, how do we make sure that we're maximizing every piece I mean that would be a great place to go high because it's it's right there on the waterfront how are we making how is the city making sure that we're maximizing those kinds of properties so that we can get our we can get our units built yeah it, it I guess it all goes back to like making sure that we zone and make uh, having the the land use um, the proper categories so that we can can so that like I guess developers can use those properties right so um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know Director Thomas was talking about how you know the city just kind of sets up the the structure with when with within which, within which developers can operate. And in this case, the structure was such that the the storage was an was an option. Maybe it shouldn't have been. Um, but you know we don't really, as the city, doesn't have control over what gets built so much. Okay. All right. Thank you. So no other board communications. Then we're moving on to uh, staff communications and then item 9A, which is our certified local government program and our annual report. Right, yeah, for uh, staff communications, uh, we just had one item. Um, we circulated around our um, annual report that we uh, send to the state each year uh, that reports on the activities of the HAB board. Um, so we just wanted to um, make sure you guys get a chance to review it and if you had any uh, comments or uh, edits that you wanted to make. So I, I have to say that I haven't reviewed it, um, but hopefully some others have. No uh, yeah, I reviewed it and did not have any uh, questions or comments for you. Okay. Um, I think we... I recall from previous uh, occasions that you guys have gone through it in detail with us. And so I was able to get through it fairly quickly and I didn't really, nothing jumped out at me as being, uh, you know, troublesome or needing, needing attention. Other comments? Okay. So uh, can we close that out? Henry? Yep. Thank do, you. Do we, we don't have to vote on it or do anything oh, no. like that? Yeah. It's just, um, it's more of a, just circulating to you for review just before we send out to the state. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
moving on to oral communications. This is uh, another opportunity for members of the public to talk to the board about issues that are not on our agenda tonight, but relevant to this board. Um, are there any speakers? There are no public speakers at this time. Okay, so we'll close that out. And with that, thank you everyone for your, your comments and you know, it was a good meeting. And uh, I look forward to taking it up again. I think next, next uh, meeting, we really should focus on some of these issues that were raised by AEPS, as well as sort of the nuts and bolts of what the city is proposing in the housing element. Um, try to have a real productive comment session and, and less presentation and more comment oriented. Yeah. Could I ask uh, if did everybody did everybody locate the attachments that that um, weren't included in our packet? I think uh, didn't Chris Beckley send those out as an attachment to his uh, most recent email? Yeah, I, I just wanted to make sure everybody caught caught that because they're they are pretty lengthy documents and um, yeah, so just making sure that everybody was aware of where those were located. So in uh, maybe Henry, you, it, would it be possible to ask that you follow up with us with just an email to those links? Yeah, sure, I can do that. I okay. can um, gather everything together and then send it all in one email for you guys. Thank yeah, you. That would you. be helpful. That would be helpful. That you know, the, I had to go searching for it, but I, I found it, and then I realized it was you know two, three hundred pages worth of stuff, and I, it was a little hard to get through. I also um, enjoyed those Vox videos. There was that email like last month um, preparing us for this, you know, meeting that, you know, we knew would have a lot of information. And so there was a few links on that, that I thought was just a nice um, kind of overview. I feel like some of the members on our board are more privy to how other cities are. And I think that's been really enriching as far as because uh, sometimes we can have blinders and we're just like thinking about Alameda, but it's nice to have that sort of background and how other cities do what they do. And I appreciated your comment, um, Jen, about uh, Arizona. Was it Arizona? Mm -hmm. Yes. And Houston was mentioned. And so the Vox video mentions a few uh, different locations that I thought kind of rounded out my understanding about all the large topics we talked about <laughs> so yeah these are these are big issues that yeah the city is trying to address no doubt yeah that was um that was an email from alan uh, alan ty sent us that email right with those with those video links yeah about a month yeah. ago he mm -hmm. you know gave us a little preparation it would have been nice to have all this other stuff a month ago too but yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, I understand it was being drafted up until sunday night yeah <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Those um, it was helpful to to have sort of the background information uh, as well that he sent along in addition to the video. So, cool. Okay. Any other thoughts? If not, we will adjourn for the for the night. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Ready. Nice to see you guys. Good night. Bye. Bye.